Oh, he is risen. So, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, if you're not for Las Vegas, you probably wouldn't. But Las Vegas is uh, one of the most churched cities in the nation. There are more churches than casinos. And there's actually more Catholic churches than casinos. Um, and so actually a lot of the parishioners give uh, chips into the offering plate rather than cash. Not a joke. And they're, and, and they're from all different casinos. So what the Catholic churches have done now is they funnel all the chips over to a local Franciscan monastery where the monks count the chips and then they go to the you know, relative casinos and they cash them in. And uh, these, these monks are actually, they call them the chip monks. It's true. Well, for those that are visiting today, uh, my name is John. I'm the senior pastor here, and hopefully my preaching is better than my stand-up comedian act. You know, there was a pastor that was uh, preparing his Easter message, and his son said to him, Dad, how do you get your messages? And he said, well, God tells me. And he said, why do you keep crossing stuff out? You know, in today's world, you know, the more followers you have on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, the more successful you are as a human being. You know that, right? Is they're all, these are all really tight friends. Um, nobody told Jesus that because Jesus only had 12 followers, which according to our, our definition of success, he'd be a complete failure. But as we know, uh, he not only was not a failure, but he is the hope of the entire world. And he did it through 12 people. Because when you are the hope of the world, you can turn the world upside down with 12 people. Not by personality, but by supernatural divinity. And so... To call Jesus the hope of the world is just a platitude unless there is some concrete content behind it. And that's what I want to give you today. For those of you that have already given your life to Jesus, this message will solidify your faith. And you'll walk out of here more deeply thankful than when you walked in because of what Jesus did for you and I. For those who have not yet made a decision for Christ, I hope today you will. And I'm going to give you information that's going to help you make that step forward because as i was saying to my girls yesterday as we drove up to ottawa and climbed an eight thousand foot mountain which is why i'm hanging out of this pulpit very tightly because my calves are screaming at me right now saying don't do that the day before you have to preach but as we were talking on the way up there i said i don't want you guys going up whether in public school and i don't want you going to college just saying i believe because my dad and my mom believe i want you to understand why you believe because god did not leave us with some vague religion that you believe this the blind faith i don't believe in at all i don't believe christianity is a blind faith i believe it is a faith based on evidence as well as the gift of faith that jesus puts into your heart to believe the good news of the gospel so i want to give you some evidence today there are three reasons we call jesus the hope of the world which would be the hope for your life as well number one is his death now his death is a historical fact it's not a myth he actually did exist he actually did die and he died uh, on a cross crucified by the romans 
And it was one of the most uh, vicious forms of torture and death that a human being could ever endure. In fact, if I did a lesson today on prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, um, the, the probability that Jesus would uh, die on the cross the way he did, when he did, how he did, by whom he did, and all the uh, prophets of the Old Testament saying this is how the Messiah will die. This is who he will be. This is where he will be born. This is uh, where he will die. All of those things, the probability of all of those prophecies coming to pass literally are so improbable there isn't a number to describe it. But what was the purpose of his death? Why does his death bring us hope? Simply for the forgiveness of of our sins. We all live with guilt. We all live with shame. We all live with an internal conscience knowing right from wrong. No matter what philosopher comes out and says there is no absolute truth, your conscience tells you differently. We all know that adultery is wrong. We all know that cheating and betrayal and lying and stealing is wrong. We don't need a law to tell us that. We know that internally it is wrong. I remember one time I was sitting with an atheistic friend and we were watching the show on TV and it was a a tribe that had never, ever had outside influence whatsoever. And that, and the whole, uh, village was in an uproar and the, 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 um, the people that were visiting went to the, to the village, uh, one of the village elders and said, what's the problem? They said, well, the chieftain took the wife of another villager and then kicked the husband out of the village. And the whole village was in an uproar. And I turned to my atheistic friend and said, now, how do they know that's wrong? They've never been introduced to the Bible or the Quran or any other form of religion. Because God has put inside all, each one of us a conscience. Morality cannot come out of evolution. Morality is an innate, God-given witness of right and wrong. And so we carry this guilt around with us because we've all messed up. And we try to relieve ourselves of this guilt on a daily basis. And usually we play the blame game or we're very defensive or we rationalize our intent because we, because we don't like the stink being on us. So we try to get it off as much as we can. Now throw it on somebody else like, like Adam did to Eve. Well, the woman that you gave me, so now Adam's blaming God. And Eve says, well, the snake did it. And the snake's like... So God cuts off his legs and everybody gets cursed, separated from God, thrown out of the Garden of Eden. But God had a redemptive plan from the very beginning, and that was the sacrifice of his son. The sacrifice of his son and you receiving his son as your savior is the only removal of guilt and shame available on the planet. No washing in a river, no lighting candles, no doing a good deed to balance out a bad deed. That's not how it works in God's economy. In fact, the Bible says the penalty of sin is death. That's why when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, saw his cousin coming down the road one day, he screamed out this in front of everybody. The next John, who's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did he call him the Lamb of God? Because in the Jewish religion, you have to sacrifice an animal in place of the death of a human being. That is the, that is the uh, tradition that God gave to the Jewish people. Because the penalty of sin is death. 
And so they would kill a lamb in place of a human being. In fact, a high priest would also lay his hands on the head of a goat, confess all the sins of the people, and then send the goat off into the wilderness to be to die. And so here's, here's John, the cousin of Jesus. They grew up together. But he calls him the Lamb of God. In that moment, God opened up John's eyes to see this isn't just my cousin. This is the Son of God. See, that's a gift of revelation. And I pray that that happens to many of you here today. That God will open your eyes as I'm preaching. That the Holy Spirit will strike your heart and open your eyes to see that Jesus isn't just a philosopher. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a rabbi or a good man. Because good men don't lie. And he said he was the Son of God. The only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But rather that you would come to believe who Jesus really is. That he's in love with you. Died for your sins. Romans 3.23 says this. For the wages of sin... Well, we could do that one too. For everyone has sinned, and we all show forth of short. This is a great scripture. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now let's go to verse 26. I'm glad I have the Bible, much of it memorized, so I know actually where to go next. And the Greek, and the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, I have it memorized. In case you're wondering. Let's go to verse 26, Romans 3, 26. No? Okay, I'll quote it. For the penalty of sin is death, but the free gift. Everybody say free gift. Free gift. Come on now, say free gift. free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's redundant. Free gift. What gift isn't free? Gifts are free. But the Bible doubles down on it and says, look. There's no way you're going to impress me when you come to heaven with your good works. Because I've also seen your bad works. I've seen your evil intents. I've seen your evil, lustful, greedy thoughts. I've seen how you feel about your uncle and your aunt and your cousin and your wife and your husband and your next door neighbor and your boss. I've heard what's come out of your mouth. I see it all. I know it all. That's why your salvation has to be free. Because you can never pay it off. You can never earn it. You can never make it up. That's why I sent my son to die for you. And if you would simply receive him as your payment for your guilt and your sin, I will freely forgive you of all of your sin. I won't even remember your sins. I will relieve you of your guilt and I will forgive you of your sins. I will breathe my spirit into you and you'll become my son or my daughter. That's a free gift from heaven. It's the best news on the planet. That's why the Bible, the gospel is called, not the bad news, it's called the good news. The Bible teaches us that our sins have separated us from God. But, but God doesn't want to be separated from his kids. So he had to sacrifice his only son so that he could have many more sons and daughters. How many of you, let me ask you a sincere question. I mean this. How many of you have kids? Raise your hands. You got kids? Anybody? Okay, about half of you. How many of you would die in place of your child if your child was going to die? Raise your hands. And now only a quarter of you. I don't know what's going on with your relationship with your children. But look, you got you to be better than that. So my oldest brother died. Uh, his best friend actually ran him over when he was 20 years old and killed him. 
They were goofing off. And so at the funeral, my son, uh, my, my, my brother, who I idolized, I was 16, he was 20, um, was laying dead in the coffin. And my dad waited for the funeral home to empty out. And my dad then climbs in the ca- casket. And he said to God, I want you to trade my life for his. My dad was a leader in the Catholic Church at that time. He was a layman. But when that didn't happen, when it didn't happen, my dad decided that God really wasn't all-powerful and came to the place where he believed that God did not exist and became an atheist. And one day I went to my dad and said, look, dad, it's not that God couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it because every person that lives once and then they die and then the judgment. Every person is responsible for their own life. You cannot take his place. Well, our God did make an exchange and he's the only one that could. Jesus, the son of God, the only innocent man who ever lived on the planet took your place. He died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 says he did this while he was dying on the cross. This has to do with you. You have to own this. This is God's gift to you. For he rescued us. Well, let's, let's go to uh, chapter 2. Well, that's a good one too. Go back. I like this verse too. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. What a great passage. Let's look at this next one. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, not with the religion, not with church attendance, not with giving, not with serving the poor. But he made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. Now, you know what that means? Here's the bad news. Every sin you have ever committed, every evil thought you've ever thought, every wicked emotion you've ever had an intent has been recorded in a book in heaven. Some of you have a pretty thick book. Others think your book is kind of thin, which makes yours actually thicker. Because that's called self-denial and self-righteousness. And why? Because if you don't receive his son, then you then have a debt you have to pay. And when you come before God on judgment day, he will open the book and he will have all the record of your sin, not to shame you, but simply because he's a righteous judge and he will make a legal argument against your entering heaven. So what loving God would do that? The same loving God that has made provision for your escape from judgment day, which was his own son. This is the whole point. And the day you receive his son, which I hope some of you do today, immediately all the records of your sins are completely eliminated from the book. And your name is written to another book called the book of life. But that's your choice. This is the choice that God offers you today through the gospel. He canceled the record of the charges against us and away by nailing it to the cross in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross in other words god said that person used to be yours devil 
Now he or she is mine because they gave their life to Christ. And he shames the enemy publicly, as every king does that takes over another country. Uh, historically, what they would do is they would take the king, and they would chain the king, and they would walk him in a procession down the city streets, uh, uh, humiliating the king in defeat. This is what Jesus Christ did when he died for your sins, and then he rose from the dead. He broke the power of death, hell in the grave. He took the keys of death on the grave away from the enemy and shamed him publicly for your freedom, for your freedom. You see, Christianity is not about duty, but about devotion. We aren't here because we have to be. Well, some of you are. Some of you got drug here. Some of you, it's Eastern mom said, we're going to church. Some of you, you know, I don't know, stumbled in, didn't know what was going on here today. But for true followers of Jesus, Christianity is not a duty. My goodness. It is devotion. It is not an obligation. It is a celebration. A life lived without God is a wasted life. So, you get a degree, you get a job, buy a house, car, have a career, play sports, get a trophy, and then you die. Life's but a vapor. What was it for? God has a divine purpose for your life, and it begins with walking with Him, having your sins forgiven, then having Him invade your life, and you guys walk together. Everything a Christian does for God is thanksgiving to God. A Christian is not trying to earn his or her way to heaven. It's a free gift. Have I told you that yet? Will you say free gift out loud? Free gift. It's so because we received a gift of salvation, something we could never earned, our life, every dime you give in the offering, every good deed you do, every prayer you pray, every song you sing is a thank you to the living God who poured out his grace on you and I. I had a friend who... She was so overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. I was doing a youth camp up in the mountains up here in Kuyamaka. She walks out into this amphitheater. Nobody was there, but there was this wooden cross down at the bottom of the amphitheater. And she sat there. She was about 19 years old. And she looked at that cross, and she was just overwhelmed with the reality of what her friend, Jesus Christ, did for her. Suffered and died in her place. It overwhelmed her. She walked down, hugged the cross right there in the woods, right in front of God and everybody. Well, actually, it was just God because nobody else was there. And she said, what can I ever do to repay you? And he spoke to her heart in that moment and said, by the way you live your life. Around here, we have a phrase, and it's actually a new phrase. Because we've revamped our mission statement because we weren't nailing our mission statement. There was something missing in the way we said things around here. In fact, a couple of church members who are here today brought it up to my attention. It had always been rolling around inside of me, but I didn't really do anything about it. And they brought it front burner. Our mission statement used to be loving Jesus, loving one another, loving those who are far from God. But on the inside of me, there was always something that was a missing step. That we begin by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we love Jesus. There's a step before that. Because the reality of us, the reality is none of us love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God knows us. So don't lie to yourself. 
You're not fooling him. He knows that we have all sorts of loves and desires that compete, right? So there's this, right? Okay. So this half doesn't love God with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you, this half must because the Bible says this. We love him because he first loved us. Our love is a responsive love. And the more revelation you have of what God has done for you, the more you love him. So the way we say it now around here, and if you haven't heard it, you're about to hear it for the first time. This is now our new motto around here. Loving God back. That's what we do around here now. We witness to the lost is because you're loving God back. You give in the offering, you're loving God back. You sing a song, you're loving God back. You forgive somebody who's offended you, you're loving God back. You say it with me? Loving God back. That's everything we do around here comes out of we're just loving God back. Because he loved us first. So the first thing Jesus' death did for us was forgave us of our sins. But here's the second thing his death has done for us. Freedom from the fear of death. It's one of the greatest fears in the human race. I'm not afraid of death now. It's just a door. Jesus called himself the door. The day I die, I get to see Jesus face to face. I believe that with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hope I can negotiate with God how I die... Like, can I just fall asleep and then wake up and there we are? But death doesn't, doesn't, the fear of death isn't in me anymore because I'm a follower of Jesus. Look what the Bible says about his death regarding death. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had, past tense, Praise God, the power of death. Only in this way could he set free, everybody say set free, set free all who live their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. If you were to die tonight, and be honest with yourself, if you were to die tonight, are you ready? Will you, would you be afraid if you got a report right now, right now, you got a report on your phone. The doctor says tonight, you're not going to make it through the night. Tonight you are going to die. What would happen on the inside of you? What kind of fear would you experience? Kind of anxiety. If you give your life to Jesus today, you will never have to fear that news ever again. In fact, the Bible says those who are followers of Jesus, they literally use this term in the Bible. They just go to sleep. They don't even use the word death. They use sleep. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And you wake up in his presence. This brings up the second reason. That was all just the first reason, by the way. We're going to be here until about 3 o'clock. So just settle in. Hope you brought your lunch. There are three reasons why Jesus is called the hope of the world. One is his death. And I just skimmed a rock over the lake on that particular theological point. Secondly... What is today? Is his resurrection. The second reason Jesus is called the hope of the world is because of his resurrection. 
There are a couple things that his resurrection does for us. Number one, he gives us supernatural help in this present life. There's a philosophy that came out of the uh, 1700s, 17th century, I believe, 18th century out of uh, Europe, the Enlightenment. It's called the Enlightenment, which is uh, that God slung the universe into existence, but he is not actively involved in our daily lives. What a, what a horrible philosophy. That's terrible. What father would not be engaged in the lives of his children? The person who originated that philosophy, the philosopher, clearly did not know God. Clearly did not know God. Clearly did not know the father. The father is deeply involved in the lives of his children. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18 says this. We also know the son did not come to help angels, but he gave help to the descendants of Abraham. That's you and I. I don't have time to explain that. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. Isn't that great that Jesus calls his followers his brothers and sisters? So that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Honey, my wife, her name's not Honey, but I call her that. Hope, did Jesus walk through cancer with you last year? I mean, you felt his presence and his strength. Could you imagine having walked through that without him? What horror. There are many people, maybe you in this room today, that walk through trials in this life without Jesus. I'm telling you, he is knocking on your door. He does not want you to walk through this life without him. Look what the psalmist says, David, who knew the Savior so personally. He says this, Psalm 23, very famous psalm. You hear it at funerals a lot. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams and renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, brings honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley... I will not be afraid, for you are close behind me, and your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. I don't care what you do, whether it's in sports, whether it's in school, whether it's at work, or going through a trial of suffering. Why would you not want Jesus with you? He has all knowledge, all wisdom, all strength, all joy, all peace, all power, all love. And he's knocking on your door, and he wants to be involved in every step of the way with you. The other thing his resurrection does besides gives us supernatural daily intervention and help, which, by the way, literally, if I pass the microphone around this congregation to ask stories about Jesus' supernatural divine intervention in people's lives, we literally would be here all week long, hearing story after story after story after story. It makes me really sad for those who don't have faith in Christ because I know that you're not experiencing those stories, but you can. All you have to do is invite him into your life today, and you will begin. In fact, when I was 19 years old, I went to church three times because some guy wouldn't stop inviting me, and it was really annoying. And so I finally went just to get him to stop inviting me. That's why I went. But I knew there was a hole in my soul. I knew something was missing. I was going to college. I had a girlfriend. I was, you know, had a part-time job. I was a musician. You know, uh, it was, I mean, my life was good. My mom and dad loved me. I mean, everything was great. But there's something missing. We weren't designed to live life without God. Do you know that? I mean, he created us. 
And he created us for a relationship. I didn't have that. And so after I went down to that church a few times and everybody's wearing jeans. And by the way, I'm dressed up today because it's Easter. But next week you'll see me back in jeans. And I'm preaching from the stage because the lighting in here has been bad. So we moved up here today. And I asked Jesus and he said he would come anyway if I didn't wear jeans. And I preached on the stage. So I knelt down and I said, those people down there, they wear jeans and they're all happy and nobody's stoned. I don't get it. I said that, really. I mean, it really, I didn't understand it. They were all relaxed. They're all happy. They have live music. Everybody has Bibles. And nobody's drunk and nobody's stoned. And that's the only word I knew. So I didn't understand where you get this energy from. Where's this joy come from? And so I knelt down when I was 19 years old and I said, Jesus, if you're who those people down there say you are, I'm inviting you into my life. And here I am over 30 years later preaching the gospel because Jesus has risen from the dead. Romans 1, 1 through 14. Before we go there, the resurrection, this is so important. I'm going to camp on here just for a couple of minutes. This is so important. The resurrection not only gives you divine, daily, supernatural help walking with Jesus, but it proves he is who he said he is. The Son of God. Romans 1, 1 through 4 says this. This letter is from Paul, who used to be Jewish. A slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle, sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. His resurrection is significant as the hope of the world because it is the foundation of Christianity. It's the cornerstone. In fact, if you don't believe in Christ, you don't believe in the resurrection, or you don't believe in Christianity, or if you're a Christian and you're being taught other philosophies and you're being challenged not to believe in Christianity anymore, you have to explain the resurrection before you jump ship. You have to somehow get around the resurrection. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God, which then proves that everything he said and taught is true. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive talk, isn't it? Well, if you can predict your death, where you're going to die, how you're going to die, when you're going to die, who's going to kill you, and it all happens exactly as you said it before it happened. I mean, who can do that? And predict your resurrection and then actually raise from the dead... I think you get to be the Savior of the world. But because this resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity, critics for centuries have tried to disprove the resurrection. On my way up to Ottawa yesterday, I quizzed my girls about the resurrection. And I gave them every um, point, every critique, every belief to try to debunk the resurrection i could throw at them that critics have used over centuries and i don't want to be disrespectful but i do want to say they are laughable and i'm going to give you a couple of them right now just to give you an example and by the way they passed the test thank god okay you would think being raised in church they would pass that test So, here's a couple of them. You guys want to hear a couple of these? 
And this will help those of you here today who want an intellectual response to why Christians believe in the resurrection. One of the debates is, one of the, uh, one of the uh, points is that he didn't actually die on the cross. He fainted. Listen, these are legitimate. You'll read these in books. You'll hear these, that he fainted. He swooned. He didn't actually die on the cross. Well, there are many reasons to, to, to prove that he did. I'll give you a couple of them. Number one. Uh, when you have low blood, blood, when you've lost a lot of blood, it's called hypovolemic shock. What that means is when you don't have enough blood in your body, you begin to, of course, lose your strength and lose your life. Jesus was whipped and beat so badly that he lost so much blood that he couldn't even carry the cross to the hill and somebody had to carry it for him. He gets to the cross and he's bleeding out so badly that he goes into hypovolemic shock, which happens when you've lost so much blood that water surrounds your heart and your lungs. So when these soldiers who who crucify people all day long, every day, it's their job, uh, were told to let the men down off the cross because it's the Passover and they didn't want to offend the Jews, so they are going to... um, Make sure these people who are being crucified are dead and take them down off the cross before sunset. They went to the first guy and they broke his legs. He wasn't dead, so you break the legs. The reason is because when you're being crucified, you suffocate because your arms are up. and So you, so you push up. you got your feet nailed to the cross. You push up. And you go back down like this. So you break the legs so they can't push themselves up so you suffocate and you die. So they broke the legs of the first guy. They broke the legs of the second guy. These soldiers who do this for a living came to the third guy who was Jesus and said, wow, we're shocked. He's already dead. So they didn't break his legs. But they said, let's make sure. So they took a spear and they drove it into his side, right into his heart. And not only blood came out, but water and blood came out. That's medical proof. But he had died as water surrounded his heart and his lungs. Besides that, I think the soldiers would have known when somebody was dead or not. Because, again, they did this for a living. Then they would say, well, again, let's say he didn't die. Let's say he survived all of that. This is all historical facts. I mean, he did die. He was crucified. I mean, all secular historians, meaning non-Christian historians from the first and second century, record his death and all these things that happened. It's not just followers of Christ. So they say, well, he didn't die, and he, and he escaped from the tomb. He escaped from the tomb. Well, first of all, in that physical condition, he would have somehow been able to physically move the stone himself. From the inside, which is a massive boulder covering the mouth of a cave. It's all smooth on the inside. There's nothing to grab a hold of. But somehow he did that. And then after he moved the stone in this physical condition, he overcame the Roman centurions that were sent there by the Romans uh, at the behest of the Jews to guard the tomb. So Jesus, in his physical condition, moves the stone from the inside, then overwhelms these Roman soldiers... And escapes. Praise the Lord. Say, well, the disciples, here's another one. The disciples stole his body. Okay. Again, the soldiers. So these fishermen, these tax collectors, have to overpower these armed soldiers that are guarding the tomb. And let's say they do that. And then let's say that they actually go and they find the body of Jesus. And they steal the body of Jesus. And then they hide it where we don't know for the last 2,000 years. And they tell everybody he rose from the dead. What is wrong with that scenario? Because people actually believe this. They actually tell this story. The disciples stole the body. 
Well, besides the fact that they would have to have overpowered the soldiers and moved the stone, they then would have to have lied to everybody about the resurrection, which now means that the followers of truth himself, Jesus, the one who represents truth and honesty, transparency, have decided to deceive the world into the world's most virtuous religion. We want the world to be a place of honesty and truth and goodness, so we are going to lie and deceive the world into this religion by, by saying that he rose from the dead. And then they are tortured and martyred for their belief. And there is not a psychologist worth his or her salt who will not tell you this, who will not say, nobody will die for what they know to be a lie. So here they are being tortured, being forced to blaspheme, deny Jesus Christ. They know he didn't raise from the dead. They stole his body and they hid it. But they will allow themselves to be tortured and killed for the lie. It certainly doesn't make sense. Then you have, can I go on with a couple more thoughts here real quick? Then you have the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Now, Mark, our associate pastor, here is a lawyer. And he will tell you, and as you know, because you've watched Law and Order, that if you have circumstantial evidence, it can be weak. But if you have an eyewitness, you're in serious trouble, aren't you? Now, if it's a criminal eyewitness, you can defame him. But we're talking about the apostles. We're talking about the Mother Mary. Are you going to talk smack about her? These guys each had their own story of the resurrection. I saw him after he rose from the dead. Then Paul says over 500 others saw him after he rose from the dead. So now we have 500 plus the 11 plus Paul. Okay, now you've got all these eyewitnesses. You have one eyewitness in court, you're in trouble. Two eyewitnesses, you're done. 513 eyewitnesses? Okay, so here's the next rebuttal. Well, they are delusional. Well, to be delusioned means that you're seeing something that doesn't exist. And science has proven that no two people would ever, ever have the same delusion. How could you? Because delusion originates inside your brain. So how could Fred and Joe and Sally and Sue all have the exact same delusion? It's scientifically impossible. Here's the last one I'll give you. Did you know that there was a solar eclipse at noon in Jerusalem when Jesus died? It was noon, straight up, sun shining, and all of a sudden there was an eclipse, according to two secular uh, second century historians that said that it's a historical fact. That at noon for three hours in Jerusalem, the sky went black and the stars came out. Even secular historians write about it, but they try to explain it away and they say that it was an eclipse. Um, I won't read because of time, but I have three second century historians here that are giving their quotes about this event. But I'm just going to say to you why their accounts make no sense whatsoever because eclipses happen when 
the moon or the sun are right underneath each other. And then they come across each other. Now you have an eclipse. The problem is the Passover and the Jewish holidays is in the middle of the month where the sun and the moon are diametrically opposite of one another. So it was physically impossible for there to be an eclipse when the sun and the moon are on opposite sides of the universe. And then there were the earthquakes and the splitting of rocks and the raising of the dead, which are all historical facts. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? You're in Jerusalem at noon down at the market. And all of a sudden, the stars come out. The sky goes black. The stars come out, which happened the minute Jesus breathed his last. And then there's an earthquake and rocks start splitting. Again, non-Christian secular historians of the first and second century write this as a fact. And then the graves pop open, and then there's Uncle Fred walking down through the market. I don't know what he looked like because he's been dead. Many came out of their graves and are walking through the city. Could you imagine? That would have been wild. So the debunking, the myths of the resurrection are not that hard. And it's the resurrection that our faith in Christ is squarely found. And finally, about his resurrection, his resurrection gives us the hope of life after death because Jesus conquered the grave. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 23 says this. But tell me this. But in fact, we'll do that. Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the Apostle Paul. Um, Can you back it up? But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, which I just did. This is the Apostle Paul. Why are some of you saying there would be no resurrection from the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And all of our time here this morning has been a waste of time. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. Next. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, and everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Everybody say new life. But there is, there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And this is the final point. Why we have hope. One, Jesus' death forgives us of all of our sins. Secondly, his resurrection gives us hope in this life and in the next life. And thirdly, he's the hope of the world because of his return. When I was 
hiking yesterday, and I mean, actually it was about five minutes into the hike I wanted to go home, but you know, it's a five-hour round trip. I'm telling you, on the way home, I mean, Sam's out, Lily's out, you know, Bella was almost out, but she was driving, so thank God she wasn't out. And uh, I mean, I was thinking, we were all like, we just want to go home. We want to get home. We want to rest. We want to eat a good meal, right? Man, life is weary. Life can be hard. Life can be arduous. But Jesus has made us a phenomenal promise while we are sojourning. This is not our home, family of God. We are just passing through. Jesus has made us an incredible promise. In John chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, and we're going to close with this. John 14, 1 through 4. Don't, this is Jesus talking. Well, you can go to Connect Group this week, too, because don't... <laughs> Because then you can apply everything that was preached today. Otherwise, you know, what are you going to do with it? That's right. You guys think you can throw me off my game back there, don't you? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. And that's to every one of you here who have not yet given your life to Christ, which I'm going to give you a chance to do in just a moment. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you. Isn't that beautiful? So that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Philip said, how do we know the way? And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know who I am? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I hope I've proved to you today, if you have not yet come to Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. Where all the apostles are lying. And the Bible isn't true, but it is. And Jesus is in love with you. And he died for you. He rose from the dead for you. And he's coming back, hopefully, for you. But you have to receive him as your Savior. Would you close your eyes for a moment in this moment of privacy? First, I want to talk to those here who have already given their life to Christ, but you're not walking with him. I want to say to you, you're breaking his heart. Because Jesus, Jesus is so madly in love with you. There's no friend you have that will ever do for you what Jesus did for you. He suffered and died for you. So that you could have a relationship with him. And so today, first of all, for those who thought this Easter was going to be for those who had not yet come to Christ, it's also for you to draw near to Jesus again. Would you rededicate your life to Jesus right now if you've never given your life to him and say, Jesus, forgive me for wasting my life on temporal things. And I'm inviting you back into my life right now. I'm inviting you back into my life. I'm giving you permission to be involved in everything I'm involved in. I want to feel your love again. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness of my sins. If you'll say that to him, Apostle Peter denied Jesus in his darkest hour. And yet when Peter saw Jesus again, Jesus didn't even bring up his sins. He just said, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? 
And that's what he's saying to you today. If you have fallen away from Christ, he's just saying, do you still love me? Come home. And you're going to have your peace restored immediately. Right now, right where you're sitting, pray that prayer. Jesus, I'm coming back. As soon as you do that, you're going to feel the peace of Jesus flooding through your soul again. That's called forgiveness and mercy and grace. Now, continuing in this moment of privacy, those of you here today who came and you've never accepted what Jesus did for you in his death for the forgiveness of your sins, I promise you, you will never be able to erase your own sins. The penalty of sin is death, which is eternal separation from God. But God has given you a free gift. But you must receive a free gift. Just like a Christmas gift, you have to receive it. But that's you today. And you want to give your life to Jesus. He's been moving on your heart through this whole service. And he's drawn you to salvation before it's all over and it's too late. And you want your sins forgiven and to know you're right with God. If that's you, will you raise your hand right where you are so I can know who you are. And I want to pray for you that you receive Christ as your Savior. Right where you are, just slip your hand straight up and say, that's me. I need to receive Jesus as my Savior today. I'm making Him the Lord of my life. When He comes back, I want Him to come back for me. Anybody raise your hand so I can see your hand? Giving your life to Christ today. You can also write it on your visitor card or leave a note that you are coming to Christ today or that you need prayer. And I pray for the rest of us on this Easter Sunday, this resurrection day. We are to be the most joyful people on the planet because we are just passing through as we're on our way home. But we get to see Jesus face to face and live with him for eternity. Can we all stand? I'm going to ask the prayer team to come down front. You know how I talked about Jesus is alive and he does supernatural things in our lives. One of the ways that he does these supernatural things is through prayer. And these prayer teams that come down here, Jesus said, if two or more of you on earth agree in prayer about anything, I'll do it. We've seen people healed of all sorts of diseases. We've uh, seen people get words of encouragement down here that literally turn their life around. If you need prayer for anything, uh, as soon as I dismiss you, just slip out of your seats. Come down front of these prayer teams down here to pray for you. If you've never given your life to Christ and you didn't raise your hand a few minutes ago, you can slip down here and come down to these prayer teams and they'll pray with you and receive Jesus as your Savior. But for the rest of you, God loves you and Jesus is risen.